0: And we're live. (laughs) Welcome to History of a Haunting, Conspiracy Theory Edition. This is the Carrie Show in ASMR.
1: I don't know why Laura's voice is so deep. It's a little disconcerting.
0: (laughs) You love it. (laughs) Anyway, hi
1: guys. Thank you again a lot for paying for this.
0: Um, <laughs> You're bad. <Yeah. laughs>
1: so for the two of you uh, Patreons left, <laughs> right. this is for you. Um, so this is April's Conspiracy Theory, and it is my turn to tell a, to weave you a tale, if you will. Um, I, oh, sorry. Let's introduce ourselves. Not like they don't know. I'm Carrie.
0: I'm Archie. And I'm Laura. Are you going to be doing this the whole episode? I don't know if I can keep it up, but yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, I am Archie. No. I drink beer and I get loud. (laughs) All right, so there's that.
1: You can look forward to Patreons. Okay. Um, We're just going to jump right into it. Today, guys, uh, So now I'm, like, questioning if this was a good idea or if I should have done my other idea. Anyway, it's too late now. Exactly. Today, I was like, <laughs> and we're on the boat. Let's go. <laughs> right? <laughs> I can get in and row, Carrie. This is kind of, you're driving the whole thing. Um, just give me a minute to rewrite that, my other idea. <laughs> uh, today, I am going to bring to you the conspiracy theory of the Black Dahlia. Oh, good one. Yeah, I'm excited. So now, Arch, do you see why it's 20 pages?
0: 20 pages and 17,000 words? Yeah.
1: 7,000 <laughs> words. I cut it down. Um, so I got my information. You'll be proud of me, Arch. I got my information from just three sources. Really? Yes, the FBI.gov. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and stevehodel.com. Nice.
0: Oh, so,
1: wow. yes, I was. I was like, oh, Archie will be so proud. I got like you know, I don't have nine hundred sources that take. And some
0: you'll be free... so proud of of my next special because I got mine from three sources as well.
1: <laughs> Yay! Look at us growing, learning from each other, symbiotic. I love this. Okay. So on January 15th, 1947, it was a cold and dreary morning in Los Angeles when Betty Bursinger, who was a local housewife, left her home on Norton Avenue in the Limert Park section of the city. She was headed for a shoe repair shop with her three-year-old daughter. As they walked up the street and approached the corner of Norton and 39th, they passed many vacant lots bordering the sidewalks. And I guess that was very common for the time World War II had Kind of halted construction of any new businesses any new you know things like that so there were a lot of vacant lots in this particular area so while she walked along the sidewalk she noticed something white among the weeds and she didn't think much of it at first because many people would throw trash into the vacant lots so it's not too much different today (laughs) all (laughs) over the country Um, In this particular instance, as she glanced at the object, she initially thought someone had thrown away a store mannequin, and it seemed like an odd object to throw away to her, and it was even stranger because the mannequin had been separated into halves. Um, As she continued to walk forward, something kept drawing her attention back to the mannequin, so she went back to it, and upon closer inspection, she realized the mannequin was not a mannequin at all. Also, it's never a mannequin. Guys, if you see something you think is a man it's never a mannequin. <laughs> um, it was actually a woman who had been severed in half. So Betty gave a quick panicked scream and drug her daughter away from the gruesome sight. She ran across the street to a nearby house to call the police. Officers Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald arrived at the scene within minutes. When they noticed the naked body of a woman who had been cut in half, they were able to confirm Betty Bursinger's story and immediately called for backup. So I don't know if maybe they thought that she was just this crazy woman who—it's <laughs> probably just a mannequin.
0: What? Uh, what year again was this again? Nineteen forty-seven. Nineteen forty-seven. Oh yeah. Well, they always just thought women were hysterical. She probably yeah. was hysterical, like screaming that there's a woman cut in half in a lot across the street. Like she probably mm-hmm. sounded insane.
1: Right, yeah, so they probably shipped her off immediately to the local asylum because that was like one of their favorite reasons to put a woman in an asylum it was hyteria
0: give her a what was it thelouden or what yeah, yeah, good fun stuff, right, exactly, um.
1: So the Los Angeles Police Department noted that the woman's body seemed to have been posed. She was lying on her back with her arms raised over her shoulders, and her legs were spread in a twisted display of seductiveness. There were cuts and abrasions across her body, and her mouth had been sliced to extend her her smile from ear to ear. Investigators believe she had been tied down and tortured for several days due to the rope marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Her naked body had been cleanly sliced in half just above her waist. So in addition to all this, if you guys need to hear more, uh, there was no blood present on her body and there was none on the grass beneath her either. Investigators determined that she must have been killed elsewhere, cleaned of blood and then dumped in the vacant lot overnight. So one of the detectives on scene, Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins, described the condition of the body when he first arrived at the crime scene like this. He said, quote, the body was lying with the head towards the north, the feet towards the south. The left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk. The body was lying face up and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches. The upper body, the upper half of the body from the lower half. So it was like her upper half was here and her lower half was like over here. So it wasn't like it exactly lined. It was just sort of, it was noticeably pushed to the side from the upper half of her body. So he continues, quote, there was a tire track right up against the curbing and there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in this tire mark. And on the curbing, which was very low, there was one spot of blood and there was an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway. And it also had a spot a spot of blood on it. It had been brought there from some other location. The body was clean and appeared to have been
0: washed. So we were just talking about whether the Black Dahlia... Diet- the cut in her mouth was an inspiration for the Joker. And I've heard that it was, and I've heard that it wasn't. Um, And just doing a little bit of internet research, it says that it's um, called the Glasgow smile. Um, Oh, yes. Or, or yeah. Did you, do you cover this? No, I don't, but I I read about it and I actually took it out of my notes. But yeah, definitely go ahead and tell them. So it was used um, in Glasgow in the... uh, uh, the 19th century and also in London, um, by the Chelsea headhunters, a gang there. And, um, it was used to basically like mark a victim of those gangsters and they would cut them and then like beat them in the chest and they would die and turn like from bleeding from the mouth. sounds like Hmm. very interesting. Oh God. Okay. That sounds horrifying.
1: Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I did come across that. That was the style that they said that they had used on her. Because one side was three inches, they had cut three inches, and then the other side was two and a half
0: inches. Um, well, they say, and as they, as they beat them in the chest, like, it makes it rip more. It makes it bleed more. Really? that's a that's, little bit horrific, Yeah. yeah.
1: Huh. Um, They didn't find anything like that. I do cover a little bit, Arch, sorry, a little bit about her autopsy, but for the most part, you're through the worst of it. Um, (laughs) So now Captain John Donahoe assigned two senior detectives to the case, Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen and Detective Finnis Brown. So by the time that Hansen and Brown received their orders and arrived at the scene, news of the gruesome murder had already spread. And it traveled like wildfire, obviously. This was a horrific crime, and so everybody knew about it immediately. The crime scene was teeming with reporters, photographers, and a crowd of curious onlookers. Hansen was furious that civilians and careless officers were trampling the crime scene and destroying evidence, so he ordered the public to immediately clear the area. And I think that a lot of these crimes that we've covered and we've heard about There was no forensic files. There was no CSI. There was none of that, like, secure the crime. There was none of that. So, like, Arch, wasn't it in Villisca, the the Villisca axe murder house, where the townspeople actually went through the house as...
0: Rifled all through the house, fucked everything up. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this was really no different. And, again, it was 1947. But it's just one of the many ways that the LAPD was not the greatest (laughs) in this case and in the 40s. Um, And I I cover a couple of uh, other reasons. So while the detectives investigated the crime scene, the woman's body was transported to the Los Angeles County morgue. The LAPD wanted to identify her as quickly as possible. So they lifted her her fingerprints, And they needed to safely send them to the FBI headquarters in D.C. However, severe winter storms at the time had the potential to delay the identification request for up to a week. So that was far too much time to waste for this kind of a homicide investigation. So they were trying to figure out, like, the best way to get these prints to the D.C. FBI office. So there's a guy named Warden. Willard, and he was the assistant, assisting managing editor of the Herald Express newspaper. He was willing to assist the LAPD in their investigation because I guess the newspaper, this is like one of my favorite parts of the whole story. The newspaper had recently purchased new technology called a sound photo machine. So Woolard believed that he could use the sound photo equipment, which was sort of like an early fax machine. Oh, wow. Yeah, Um, He believed he could use this equipment to send the woman's fingerprints to the FBI. So when he spoke to the LAPD captain, Jack Donahoe, about his idea, the guy was like, great idea. Let's get this set into motion. So when the fingerprints were first transmitted to the FBI, they couldn't be read because they were blurry. So there was a... A photographer for the Herald Express, a guy by the name of Russ Lapp, who suggested that they actually reverse the lab process and use the prints as negatives before sending them to the FBI again. So he also blew the prints up to size 8 by 10, which made them large enough for FBI specialists to clearly read her fingerprints. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was really impressed. I was really impressed by that. It was Right. Um, with these readable prints, the FBI identified the victim as twenty-two year old Elizabeth Short. So her fingerprints actually appeared twice in the FBI's massive collection of fingerprints, which at the time was 104 million fingerprints. So
0: it's so, amazing they could even right? narrow that down.
1: Well, <laughs> I mean, because there's a, there's no CODIS, obviously, in nineteen forty seven. So that's actually right. like looking
0: at fingerprint cards yeah one after another after Mm -hmm. another yeah Yeah. and she wasn't even from la Mm -mm. so it's not like you could have started in california but she wasn't even from there so was it even like were her fingerprints even from you know what i mean if you pull the california ones and start there i don't remember where she was from but she wasn't from there right right yeah, she was from Massachusetts, so
1: um, <laughs> it's going to take a long way to work across the country, <laughs> <library. laughs> especially if they're going alphabetically. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, what had happened was she had her short, her fingerprints appeared in their files twice, first because she had applied for a job as a clerk at the commissary of the army's camp cook in California in 1943. So that's how they were able to find her. Almost right away. They d- identified her within 57 minutes.
0: Wow. wow. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Um, second, her second set of fingerprints they had on file because she had been arrested by the Santa Barbara police for underage drinking seven months after she applied to Camp Cook. So they also had her mugshot in their files. Um, and they provided it to the press because they had, somebody had to have known this girl. So now while they were doing that and identifying her, her body was being examined in the coroner's office. The autopsy revealed multiple lacerations to the face and head. There was no sperm present on the body because the killer had washed the body clean. There were numerous cuts in a crisscross pattern over her pubic area and her pubic hair had been removed by hand. Most of the damage, sorry, Arch, I i told him he was through the worst of it and I was wrong um most of the damage done seemed to have been post-mortem including the severing of the victim's body at her waist the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face so charming story isn't it lovely did you expect anything less from my next one's not great either. Like my next one I'm going to do isn't great either. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, so Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. Shortly after she was born, her parents moved the family to Medford, Massachusetts. Cleo Short was Elizabeth's father, and he was making a living designing and building miniature golf courses, which did you know miniature golf courses have been around that long <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Right? Um, when the Great Depression hit, however, in 1929, he abandoned his wife, Phoebe, and their five do- daughters. He proceeded to fake his suicide, leaving his empty car near a bridge, leading authorities to believe he had jumped into the river below. So stand-up guy. Um, yes. Phoebe was left to deal with the hard times of the depression and had to raise the five girls on her own. To support her family Phoebe worked multiple jobs but most of the short family's money came from public assistance One day, Phoebe actually received a letter from Cleo, the husband that faked his suicide. He had moved to California. He apologized and told Phoebe that he wanted to come home to her. However, she refused to see him again Good girl (laughs) Damn right Yeah So Elizabeth, she was also known as Betty, Bet, or Beth. She grew up to be a very pretty girl. She was always told that she looked older and acted more mature than she really was. Although she had asthma and lung problems, her friends still considered her to be very active and lively. She was very fixated on the movies, which were the short family's main source of affordable entertainment, Um, And the theater allowed her an escape from the dreariness of her ordinary life. So when she got older, her father Cleo offered her the chance to come live with him in California until she was able to find a job. Elizabeth had worked in restaurants and theaters in the past but she knew that she wanted to be a star and so she knew she had to go to California to do that. So driven by her enthusiasm for the movies, she packed up her things and she headed to live with Cleo in Vallejo, California in early 1943. However, it didn't really take too much time before their relationship kinda became strained and got fucked up. Her father would scold her for her laziness, poor housekeeping, and dating habits. Um, And then eventually he kicked her out in mid-1943 and she was forced to fend for herself. I said, bless you. And she's like, I'm like, are you gonna sneeze again? And she's like, no. And I'm like, are you sure? And she goes, no. So he kicked her out. She was forced to fend for herself. She applied for a job as a cashier at the post exchange at Camp Cook. The servicemen quickly noticed her because she was really a very beautiful girl. And she apparently won the title of Camp Cutie of Camp Cook in a beauty contest. Um, However, she was actually quite a uh, vulnerable and emotionally vulnerable girl. And she was very desperate for a husband. So word spread that she was not an easy girl. Which then kept her at home instead of out on dates most nights because they didn't want to date a girl who wasn't easy. So she became uncomfortable at Camp Cook and left to stay with one of her friends who lived near Santa Barbara. So now, remember when I told you that she had been arrested and her fingerprints were on file with the FBI because she had been arrested for underage um, drinking? Mm-hmm. Apparently, this occurred on September 23rd, 1943. She'd been out with a group of rowdy friends in a restaurant until the owners called the police. So, because she was underage at the time, um, she was booked and fingerprinted, but never charged. The police officer actually felt sorry for her and arranged for her to be sent back to Massachusetts to her mother. But it wasn't long before Elizabeth returned to California, and this time she went to Hollywood. So when I was going over this story with my mom, she was like, well, what was underage at the time? And I was like, that's an excellent question. I'm going to put that in my notes so that I can answer that question if Laura and Archie should ask. And then I didn't. So
0: I think it's 18. Though. 18? I think it is because usually in wartime it drops. Oh, okay.
1: So... While she was in L.A., Elizabeth met a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling, and she fell in love with him. He was the type of man she had been searching for, and she had quickly made plans to marry him. However, her plans were halted when Fickling was shipped out to Europe. So their relationship ended. She then took a few modeling jobs, but she she still felt discouraged with her career. She went back east to spend holidays in Medford with her family before living with relatives in Miami. She began dating servicemen, marriage was still on her mind, and she again fell in love with another pilot. This time, his name was Major Matt Gordon. He promised to marry her after he was sent to India. However, he was killed in action, leaving her heartbroken. So Elizabeth had a period of mourning over this um, Major Matt Gordon's death, and she had told others that Matt had actually been her husband and that their baby had died in childbirth. When she began to recover, she attempted to return to her old life by contacting her Hollywood friends. One of those friends was Gordon Fickling, her former boyfriend. Seeing him as a possible replacement for Matt Gordon, she began to write him and met with him in Chicago when he was in town for a few days. However, that relationship really didn't ever turn into anything. Um, Elizabeth left Los Angeles on December 8th, 1946 to take a bus to San Diego. But before she left, she was supposedly worried about something. She had been staying with a man named Mark Hansen, who said the following when he was questioned by the detective after her death. The detective said, While she was living at the Chancellor Apartments, she came back to your house and you got mail. And Mark Hansen said, yes, I didn't see her, but she was sitting there one night when I came home with Anne about five thirty, six 6 o'clock. She was sitting and crying and saying that she had to get out of there. She was crying about being scared, one thing and another, I don't know. And I was like, well, that sounds super helpful. Thank you, sir. So while she was in San Diego, she became friends with a young woman named Dorothy French. Now, Dorothy was a counter girl at the Aztec Theater and had found Elizabeth sleeping in one of the seats after an evening show. Elizabeth had told Dorothy that she left Hollywood because finding a job as an actress was really difficult with the actor strikes that were going on at the time. And Dorothy felt sorry for her, so she offered her a place to stay at her mother's home for a few days. But what ended up happening was Elizabeth ended up staying there for over a month. Now, while she was there... She did a little housework for the French family and continued her late night partying and dating habits. One of the men that she became enamored with, and I want you guys to remember his name, was Robert or Red Manley. He was a salesman from Los Angeles who had a pregnant wife at home. Manley admitted that he was attracted to Elizabeth, yet claimed he never slept with her. The two of them saw each other off and on for a few weeks, and Elizabeth asked him for a ride back to Hollywood. Manley agreed and picked her up from the French household on january eighth nineteen forty seven He paid for her hotel room for that night and went to a party with her when the two of them came back to the hotel, he slept on the bed and she slept in a chair, so just gentlemen all around
0: <laughs> nice guy,
1: yeah, super mm. nice guy, so Manley, I guess had an appointment uh the next morning on January 9th, and he returned to the hotel to pick Elizabeth up around noon. She told him she was returning to Massachusetts, but first she needed to meet with her sister at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. So he drove her there, but he didn't stick around. He had an appointment at 6.30 p.m., and he didn't wait for her sister to arrive. When Manley saw Elizabeth last, she was making phone calls in the hotel lobby. So now this guy, this Robert Red Manley, and the employees of the Biltmore Hotel were the last people to see Elizabeth Short alive. As far as the Los Angeles Police Department could tell, only Elizabeth's killer saw her after January 9th, 1947. She was missing for six days from the Biltmore Hotel before her body was found in a vacant lot on the morning of January 15th,
0: 1947. Wow. And I stand corrected, it was 21. Oh, it was 21. Oh, okay. Yeah. They lowered it again in the 70s for, when, for uh, Vietnam. Oh, okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. When, so is, when did, would they lower it to 18? Not in California, but in most states, yeah, they lowered it like to 18 for beer and wine and mm. 21 for liquor. But most of the United States at least lowered it to nineteen, eighteen 18 for beer and, beer and wine. California, uh, yes, was 21.
1: Hmm. Okay. Liquor. I don't even know her. wrecked him damn near killed him oh sorry (laughs) you're on a roll (laughs) give me some butter i'm on a roll (laughs) okay so let's get into the investigation so the herald express newspaper had breaking information on the case and the lapd had identified the victim however this symbiotic relationship between the newspaper and the LAPD began to shift because William Randolph Hearst, you guys know who he is, right? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Arch, yes. do you know who he is? The rich, super rich guy, has a big yes. castle in San Simeon, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, the huge estate. Right,
1: yeah. Uh, Chris Hardwick is married to his great-granddaughter.
0: Yes, and yeah. his and Patty Hearst was kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So So that guy caught up now.
0: Uh, Cool. Um, (laughs) He was the owner
1: of the Herald Express and was incredibly wealthy, and had reporters who discovered leads and valuable evidence in Elizabeth Short's case. So he was willing to share this crucial information with the LAPD for a price. Uh, Hearst proposed that the Herald Express would continue investigating clues and then would be granted exclusives by the LAPD, and then the LAPD would have access to all the information the reporters uncovered. So, oh,
0: so corrupt media all the way back then. Awesome.
1: Right? Um, <coughs> and they we're also kind of doing better police work than the police. Okay, so where was I? Um Okay, so yeah, basically the Herald Express was sort of like saying, hey, we'll get, we'll sol- help you solve your case, but you keep giving us exclusives and things like that. So LAPD Captain Donahoe was not happy with these terms, but he was desperate for information on the case, and so he took the offer. Um, now, Wayne Sutton, this is where it gets super fucked. I mean, it's already super fucked, but the way they notify her mother was super fucked. So Wayne Sutton was a Herald Express rewrite man, and he was assigned to locate Elizabeth Short's mother, Phoebe Short, in Medford, Massachusetts. He quickly found her and then was instructed to give her the news of her daughter's death. Again, a reporter, not a police officer. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, Yeah. So he knew, however, that he needed information to obtain info, He needed to obtain information about Elizabeth Short first, and he realized that her mother would likely to be, be too shaken up to tell him information on her if he had initially broken the horrible news to her. So he decided to tell her mother that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest in Los Angeles. And Phoebe loved to talk about her beautiful daughter. She was willing to tell him everything he wanted to know. Once he had received his information, his boss instructed him to tell her mother the brutal truth. So when he did, yes. So when he did, she didn't believe him. She couldn't fathom that her daughter was dead, let alone murdered. So the LAPD had to contact local Medford cops and send them to her house to tell Phoebe the story in person before she would accept the news.
0: That's fucked up. Isn't that so fucked?
1: Isn't that disgusting? Mm-hmm. So the Herald Express, this newspaper that William Randolph Hearst owned, was soon swamped with anonymous reports and tips, some of which actually proved to be useful. Um One anonymous caller told reporters that Elizabeth had kept photo albums of herself and her friends in a trunk. The trunk had gone missing during shipment from Chicago to Los Angeles. However, the Herald Express was determined to locate it. They ended up finding the trunk at the Greyhound Express station in downtown L.A. They would finally be able to illustrate Elizabeth Short's story with photos of herself, her friends, and her lovers. So again, police didn't find it. The press did.
0: I find this. It's, it's. I think it's all weird. It's messed up. Well, and like we just said, like they had better resources. People wanted to talk to the press. They didn't want to talk to the cops. Um, and they would, they would give them uh, money, for, you know, or incentives for giving them information. The cops didn't have any money or any any of those kind of things, and they got glory. I mean, and that case was, yeah, huge. You know what I mean? And just to even be mm-hmm. associated with it was like kind of big deal, you know how people are now with, even with celebrities, like you have any little bit of juicy gossip and there you are on TMZ, you know yeah right. that's very true so on January 17th,
1: 1947 a photograph of Elizabeth Short appeared on the front page of the Herald Express the paper had referred to her as the Black Dahlia a name that would stick almost 70 years later so why this name? Apparently, and it still kind of is today, um, it was common practice for newspapers to give interesting names to female murder victims and their killers, especially during the 1940s. And Elizabeth Short was no exception. The Los Angeles Times reported that customers at a drugstore in Long Beach dubbed Elizabeth Short the Black Dahlia as a joke in reference to the film noir murder mystery The Blue Dahlia, which had actually been released nine months prior to her murder. Elizabeth Short had frequented the drugstore when she first lived in Long Beach, and the customers remembered Elizabeth for her black hair, black garments, and fair complexion. But what was interesting, what I thought was interesting, was before Black Dahlia caught on, Elizabeth Short's killing was dubbed the werewolf murder. However, a reporter found out about the nickname Black Dahlia, and then the newspapers started to adopt this nickname shortly after, And the case of the Black Dahlia was born. Even after the Black Dahlia became more prominent, sources still sometimes refer to her killer as the werewolf. Probably because she had lacerations all over her body. It was drained of blood. That whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why she got the name the Black Dahlia. And that's why it is still known as that, what, 70, almost 75 years after her death. Mm -hmm. So... The investigators in the case had two main theories on Elizabeth Short's killer. One was that Elizabeth had never met her killer before her death, and the other theory was that she knew him beforehand. That's not much of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> those
0: are some good theories. Those are some. Those are some good theories. Real out I'm, of the box. I'm, you know what? I bet That's it's crazy. one of those two. I'm like hundred percent sure. It's I can two.
1: guarantee you, she either did. Or did not know her killer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like that we're working in a really solid framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really good. It's that kind of -of out-of-the-box
1: thinking that solves cases.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, really. And people say that, you know, the police used to do shoddy work.
1: (laughs) So... The police were convinced by the latter option due to the mutilations present on Elizabeth's corpse, which were signs of a a personal vendetta. So there was an FBI criminal profiler and an author by the name of John Douglas, and he believed the killer must have known Elizabeth well and had some emotional attachment to her. The horrific violence inflicted upon her body and leaving the body on a on public display would indicate that the killer would wanted the world to see Elizabeth and the wrongdoings that he believed she had done to him. And I think that like through all of the podcasts that we've listened to and all of like, you know, criminal minds and all this other stuff that they've kind of proven that that is the case. Like this is the way she was murdered was very personal because it's it's a very rage-filled act to stab somebody to death to strangle somebody, to, like, it's almost somebody who's detached and is killing people and is very detached. They're usually, they're going to shoot them or they're going to, you know, whatever. Um, This guy, I mean, Arch, do I need to go over again what he did to her? Like, that's, that's rage.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's something that's else. That's a whole other level. Mm -hmm. There's also controlled rage with this killing. Yeah. Because he yeah. tortured her. There was a lot of stuff that happened. You know, they were talking about, you know, terrible, I don't eight. remember how much was post mortem and how much wasn't, but there's was a lot of mm-hmm. control and then showing off. And then, you know, and then there was a bunch of stuff done post mortem. Uh, like, obviously, the right. It, I can never say that word. Say say it. And said, you, it, uh, ah, when you drain the blood. <laughs> Oh, exsanguination. And, thank you, exsanguination. Yeah. I, so like, I was like, like I wasn't... I that word. It's <laughs> one of those I, words I always have a hard time saying. I, like, I know the word, but I can't get, ever get it out of my mouth. I'm all exsanguination. I wasn't quite sure what you were trying to say, <laughs> but... okay, Exsanguination. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, so, in another attempt to analyze the killer's mind, the Herald Express, this newspaper, again, the real detectives, apparently sought out Dr. Paul DeRiver's expert opinion on the case. So now this guy apparently wrote a series of articles for the paper suggesting that the killer was a sadist who wanted to dominate Elizabeth Short. He suggested that, quote, during the killing episode, he had an opportunity to pump up affect from two sources, from his own sense of power and in overcoming the resistance of another. He was the master and the victim was the slave. Dr. River or DeRiver also hinted, that the killer might have been a necrophiliac. He said, quote, it must also be remembered that sadists of this type have a super abundance of curiosity and are liable to spend much time with their victims after the spark of life has flickered and died. Archie's hard frown could not be any frownier. <laughs>
0: like, it just gets worse as the more I talk. <laughs> That's that falls just like into everything they we were just talking about, like controlled, Um, rage and all of that, right? Like, Mm yeah, for sure.
1: So on January 23rd, 1947, the examiner, a different paper, received a call from a man claiming to be Elizabeth Short's killer. He told the editor, J.H. Richard Richardson, that he was upset with the way the story was being told in the papers. He offered to mail Elizabeth Short's belongings to the paper to prove his claim. The examiner received a package and a letter formulated from magazine clippings from an anonymous sender the following day. In this package included Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover. Mark Hansen, if you guys remember, was the guy who had allowed Elizabeth Short to stay with him in the past. And once this happened, he became the prime suspect in her murder. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, um, Elizabeth Short's handbag and shoe were actually found in a trash can the same day that the examiner received this package of her other belongings. These items were found only a few miles away from the vacant lot where her body was found. The items were identified by that Robert Red Manley before the LAPD no longer saw him as a suspect because, of course, he was the guy that dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel when she went to meet her sister he right. was one of the last people to see her alive.
0: Yeah, so he was probably number 1 at
1: the beginning. Mhm. Um, so the fact that these items were found in a trash can could have been a major mistake on the killer's part. The person likely did not assume the items would be linked to her murder, but yet they were. So the location of the items revealed that the killer was most likely within walking distance of both the vacant lot and the area where the belongings had been discarded. And then soon enough after this, more letters began pouring into various newspaper offices in L.A., including the Herald Express and the Examiner. These letters had messages formulated from newspaper and magazine clippings, which were consistent with the appearance of the first letter that police had received with Elizabeth Short's belongings. Um, And one of these letters to the Herald Express read, and this is the most convoluted BS, like I had when i was going through this with my mom i had to read the sentence 3 times before either of us could understand it and i wrote it down and i still was like uh, what um, so he writes i will give up in dahlia killing if i get 10 years don't try to find me so she and i were trying to figure out what he was saying by that to me it to me it read like I will give myself up in this killing. If you give me 10 years, don't try to find me, give me 10 years to live my life. And then I'll turn myself in. But to her, it sounded like he was saying, I will don't, I will give up in Dahlia killing. Like I will never come forward. If I get 10 years in
0: prison, Mm. it's weird. What Mm. do you guys think he's saying? Me too, it almost sounds like he would give himself up if he only got 10 years in prison.
1: I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. It's the don't try to find me part that makes me think he's like, just give me 10 years to live my life and then I'll turn myself in.
0: Yeah, I get that too. I don't know. Arch, what do you think?
1: Punctuation
0: is important. Yeah, I would. I was (laughs) just going to say, I'd have to see it to. To have a better grasp of
1: it. It's literally, there's no, it's, I will give up in Dahlia killing if I get 10 years, period. Don't try to find me, period.
0: Hmm.
1: Weird, right? Yeah. There's a lot of this in this story. Um, It's almost not as crazy as the Zodiac, but it's kind of up there with all of this, like, deciphering shit. So... The LAPD received many anonymous tips, mainly in the form of phone calls, for her case. However, most of them seemed to be hoaxes. The incoming letters were handed from the newspaper offices to the LAPD. Some of these letters were also received by the Los Angeles district attorney, who then directed the letters to the LAPD. These letters seemed to be from the murderer, and it seemed as if he were trying to taunt the detectives. His messages were often convoluted and confusing, kind of like, you know, I'll give up in 10 years or whatever that was. Um, They were often convoluted and confusing, causing the detectives to spend much time trying to decipher them. Everything sent to the LAPD, including the letters, Elizabeth Short's security card, and photographs, had been rinsed with gasoline, so the forensic examiners were unable to lift any fingerprints off of the evidence of her personal belongings and the letters. Oh, okay. Right? Which then led me to be like, okay, so if they're using like magazine clippings where it's like almost like those old school ransom notes or like how my favorite murders like logo is, it's those like letters clipped out of magazines and newspapers. But if they rinsed it with gasoline, wouldn't that ruin? I don't know.
0: Well, we're we're learning a whole lot of new things
1: here today. Right. I'm clearly not a. We're also learning that I would be a terrible criminal because I just
0: don't know how to do it. Um, I'm also like taking notes for later. Right. <laughs> Brace stuff, in gasoline. and gasoline. Gasoline.
1: All right. Um, so many of the letters also seem to give false information based on the way investigators deciphered them, and they were not very helpful in solving the case. So they were really desperate for leads and due to the way that Elizabeth short was cleanly cut in two, the LAPD was convinced that her murderer had some sort of medical training. And I think this is something that we all kind of had already known, like the way she was bisected, like we, she was drained of blood at without like, you know, I think everybody, that was just kind of one of the common things people knew. Um, According to an FBI letter on February 25th, 1947, which by the way, you can, the FBI has a special website for stuff like this that's been released by the FBI, their evidence and stuff under the Freedom of Information Act. They have a special website you can go to, to like, look at all of this stuff on the Black Dahlia and all these other cases That they've released under the freedom of information act. It was a wild ride. I was like, this is going to take me 700 years to write and, and tell in the episode. Um, (laughs) So according to an FBI letter on February 25th, 1947, It read, quote, The manner in which Elizabeth Short's body was dissected has indicated the possibility that the murderer was a person somewhat experienced in medical work. The Los Angeles Police Department has undertaken to develop suspects among the medical and dental schools in the area, as well as among other students who have anything to do with human anatomy. And I guess the University of Southern California complied with the LAPD and sent them a list of their medical students. Um, This was confirmed by another letter the FBI had on March 6, 1947, that read, references made to your letter of February 25, 1947, submitting a list bearing the names of students enrolled in the medical school of the University of Southern California, and requesting that these names be searched through the criminal indices of the identification division. However, the first suspected arrest, um, or the first suspect arrested for her murder was not one of these medical students. It was Robert Red Manley, that guy who's the last guy to see her. Um, because his alibi for January 14th and 15th was solid, and because he passed two lie detector tests, the LAPD let him go. So. The suspects. This is where we start getting into the conspiracy theory stuff. Due to the complexity of the Black Dahlia case, the original investigators treated every person who knew Elizabeth Short as a suspect. By June of 1947, police had processed and eliminated a list of 75 suspects. By December 1948, so almost two years later, the detectives had considered 192 suspects in total. About 60 people confessed to her murder, but only 22 people were considered viable suspects by the Los Angeles District Attorney. So I'm going to read you the list, not all 22, I don't think. I'm going to read you the list of the main people that they suspected for her murder. So these are the people um, that they... We're on the top of their list. Mark Hansen, Carl Balsinger, and also, guys, these names are fucking weird. Like, I'm going to read them exactly as their names were on LAPD's list.
0: Oh, boy. Here we go.
1: Yes. <laughs> Mark Hansen, Carl Balsinger, C. Welsh, just the initial C. Welsh, Sergeant Chuck, name unknown, John D. Wade, Joe Scalas, James Nimmo, Maurice Clement, a Chicago police officer, Salvador Torres Vera, medical student, yeah, Dr. George Hodel, Marvin Margolis, medical student, Glenn Wolf, Michael Anthony Otero, George Bacos, Francis Campbell, quote, queer woman surgeon, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I told you. I was like, what? Um, Dr. Paul DeGaston, Dr. A.E. Bricks, Dr. M.M. Schwartz, Dr. Arthas McGinnis-Fott, and Dr. Patrick S. O. Reilly. Okay, so the main three. Now, Laura, you were wanting to see if you're, if
0: I cover your guy? Yes. So okay. I'm <laughs> super interested to, go to go see if, like, my top, top three. <laughs> I, my personal top suspect is covered in here. Top three. I'm ready. Okay.
1: All right. So if it is, don't say anything till the end. I won't. Okay. So the main three are that I'm going to talk about here that were their, their main three were Leslie Dillon, Ed Burns, not the actor who's married to Christy Turlington um, <clears throat> and George Hodel. So let's start with Leslie Dillon. This guy was 27 years old. He worked as a bellhop and was an aspiring writer who had previously been a mortician's assistant. Mm. Fits Mm. the bill so far. Um, In October 1948, Dylan wrote to that LAPD psychiatrist, that Dr. Paul DeRiver, um, about the Black Dahlia case. Uh, he was writing to him from Florida, and he told De River that he had heard about Elizabeth Short's case from a true detective magazine where De-, De River had actually spoken on the case. So he said that he wanted to hear De River's theories on the case. And could I say the word case one more time? I just realized how many times the word case is in the paragraph. Anyway, so he wanted to hear De River's theories on the subject because he had an interest. <laughs>
0: so glad it wasn't on the case. Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah. And Archie Snort laughed. I hope everyone
1: caught that. He wanted to hear his theories because he had an interest in sadism and sexual psychopaths and wanted to write a book on those subjects, which, you know, my grandmother always said a poor excuse is better than none. (laughs) As DeRiver and Dylan wrote back and forth from Florida to Los Angeles, DeRiver actually started to believe... Wait a minute, hang on, I skipped a sentence. Sorry. That's because I didn't space it well. So, this Leslie Dillon told DeRiver that he believed his friend, Jeff Connors, was the guy who killed the Black Dahlia. And so they continued to write back and forth. And as they did, DeRiver started to believe that Connors was not actually a real man. He believed that Dylan himself had murdered Elizabeth Short and had developed Connors as a figment of his imagination to cope with the gruesome act. So, in December of 1948, this Leslie Dylan guy agreed to meet with De River in person. Um, so, De River and an undercover LAPD officer, Sergeant John O'Mara, met this Leslie Dylan guy in Las Vegas because He wanted this Dylan guy, even though he was just researching for a book on, you know, sadism and sexual deviancy or whatever, sexual psychopaths, he didn't want to meet in L.A. So the guy, the doctor had given him three choices. It was like Las Vegas, Phoenix, of course. I was like, naturally. Um, or, (laughs) Or like, I can't remember where, San Diego or somewhere. And the guy picked Las Vegas. So, they meet him in Las Vegas, and the undercover LAPD sergeant that went with him acted as DeRiver's bodyguard. So, DeRiver actually ended up was recording his interviews with this Leslie Dillon, and the following is an exchange that they had that had been recorded. So, the doctor said to this guy, quote, What do you think the killer did with the hair he shaved off the private parts of the body of Elizabeth Short? Dylan said, quote, I think the killer, such as he was, would probably have thrown the hair into a toilet and flushed it. DeRiver then said, what do you think a killer, such as he was, would do with the piece of flesh with a tattoo on it after he cut it off her thigh? Dylan said, well, I think he probably would have thrown that down the toilet and flushed it, too. So it was a number, a series of conversations like this that just kind of went back and forth where the guy just was sort of, in the killer's mindset and kind of gave all the answers that maybe the killer would. Um, the undercover officer also remembered Dylan talking about bleeding a body prior to embalming by making an incision on the upper thigh and inserting a tube to drain the blood. Dylan had this medical experience when he worked as a mortician's assistant. So, this guy dylan hoped to return to california with DeRiver and O'Mara to show them his friend jeff connors but lo and behold when they arrived in san francisco they searched for jeff connors but had difficulty locating him the lapd confronted dylan trapping him with the purpose of getting a confession out of him dylan eventually offered the police intimate details about elizabeth short's murder that the investigators had even struggled to explain Dylan had been held against his will at a hotel near Los Angeles and had been denied his constitutional rights. An undercover officer handcuffed Dylan and officially took him into custody at the Highland Park Station January 10th, 1949, almost two years to the day she was found. So detectives Finnis Brown and Harry Hansen, who were the original detectives that were assigned to the case that morning her body was found, They questioned him the evening of January 10th. The following night, the LAPD received a call from San Francisco police saying that they had found this Jeff Connors, but his real name was Artie Lane. Lane had lived in Los Angeles at the time of Elizabeth Short's murder. He had worked as a maintenance man at Columbia Studios, a favorite hangout place for Elizabeth. So I guess back in the 40s, you could just go and hang out at a movie studio. (laughs) Now you can't, but then you could. So um, it was a favorite hangout place for her. There had also been speculation that Artie Lane and Leslie Dillon could have been the same man, but the LAPD never actually confirmed this theory. So by the end of 1949, one of the main detectives, Finnis Brown, was no longer interested in this Leslie Dillon guy. The LAPD concluded that he was most likely in San Francisco when the murder took place. However, they couldn't actually conclusively place him there. In fact, the police could not account for his whereabouts between January 9th and January 15th, which were the days when Elizabeth Short had still been considered missing. What cracked me up, and my mom when I read it to her, was (laughs) Dylan later filed a $100,000 claim against the city of Los Angeles for how he was treated in the case Yet the lawsuit was dropped when the LAPD discovered that he was wanted by the Santa Monica police for robbing a hotel while working as a bellhop there. (laughs) Dumbass. Wow. Yeah. But the scandal surrounding this guy and DeRiver's involvement in the Black Dahlia investigation aided in triggering a 1949 grand jury investigation into the Elizabeth Short case and police cover-up and corruption in Los Angeles. Oh, so that's that guy. Now let's talk about Ed Burns. He's number two on my sh- thir- three-person shortlist. Um, and again, um, not the actor who's married to Christy Turlington.
0: Um, <laughs> hold on. It's not Ed. Have no Harris. Right. <laughs> Right. Hold on. I've got pictures to send
1: you guys. So let me um, get them ready. Okay. Um, So this guy. So remember the photographs of Elizabeth Short with her friends and lovers that had been found in that trunk that the Herald Express recovered from the Greyhound station? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Police were able to identify most of the people in those photos, but there was one man that the LAPD could not identify. And they labeled him in a very cryptic way. They labeled him as Unidentified Man. <laughs> I was like, wow. No one will ever figure that out.
0: They right? come up with the craziest nicknames.
1: They really do. They really do. So the writer behind The Black Dahlia Solution, which is another like book trying to crack the case, This author claims that the LAPD knew who killed Elizabeth Short yet could not hold the murderer. The writer has spent years deciphering cryptic letters received by the Herald Express and the Examiner and believes that he has solved the case. The writer accuses a man named Ed Burns of being responsible for Elizabeth Short's murder, yet no other sources have ever brought up Ed Burns as a suspect. Ed Burns was actually never mentioned In any FBI reports or accessible LAPD files, the entirety of the Black Dahlia Solution website is dedicated to explaining what the author believes happened to Elizabeth Short and her killer. And I'm going to summarize the story here. It is the most convoluted thing I've ever heard. Um, I don't actually think that. I don't. Yeah, like it's this guy would be my last choice for the killer. So let me get into the messenger here. Okay. So um, his story is basically there was a six-year-old little girl by the name of Suzanne Degnan, and she was kidnapped and murdered in Chicago in January of 1946. Her dismembered body parts were soon found in the sewers nearby. Now, William Hirons was arrested for her murder after he confessed to killing her. He was linked to two additional murders from 1945 during trial and was convicted and sentenced to three consecutive life terms in the Illinois penitentiary. According to the author, Elizabeth Short became obsessed with Suzanne Degnan's murder after it hit Life magazine. Apparently, she would go into bars and tell people that she was a reporter from Boston and would give the gruesome details of the murder again and again. So this girl... She sort of like tends to lean more toward the dark, dramatic lies. Like, because you remember when her um, fiance was killed, when he was shipped off to war, he got killed. She said that he was actually her husband and their baby died in childbirth. So she, Elizabeth Short seems to have had a tendency for the dramatic lies. And this sounds like, you know, another one.
0: It seems like she was making stuff up a lot to get people to take care of her. Right, yeah. She was, Mm -hmm. you know, always, Mm -hmm. like, in and off the street and, you know, always just trying to find a way. Right, crashing with people, that kind of thing, right. Mm -hmm. Relying on the kindness of strangers. Exactly, making up those kind of stories kind of get people Mm -hmm. to take you in.
1: Right, right. So, while going through this obsessed phase, she was still searching for a man to call her husband. And she met a man who the author claims to be Ed Burns. He had USC School of Medicine credits and lived in the Los Angeles Harbor District. So I guess the two of them hit it off at first. He believed she was his beautiful dream girl, and she enjoyed having someone to give her money and listen to her stories. However, he was not very attractive. Some people had even said he had rabbit-like features. And that, so Elizabeth likely did not want to show him off to her friends, which then later made the man difficult to identify. In the photographs they found in her trunk, so hmm. the first, <laughs> the first picture I'm going to send you guys is a picture of her and Ed Burns. But I, my mom and I don't see rabbit features. Like, tell me what you guys think.
0: Oh Lord, oh,
1: he's not That's, a bad looking guy.
0: He's stunning, and, <laughs> and he's, he's, he's not, really not bad looking. I mean, he's, he's not funny. like. Yeah. I mean, he's not Brad Pitt, but... Um, I mean, who is? But he's really not, bad, like, bad-looking. Brad Pitt. Yeah. <coughs> Whatever, you know what I mean? Like, he's not...
1: I mean, he's not. I mean, he's not He's not Brad Pitt. He's not, not Chris purely or asymmetrical, Lamar, but... He's, right, he's not... He looks, like,
0: looks like a genuine person.
1: Right, yeah. and I'm like, some even said that he had rabbit-like features, and I'm like, I don't see that at all.
0: Yeah, maybe it's like a really good picture. <laughs> right. <You know>? <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> really, in person, he
1: look, just looks fucked. Maybe he's, I mean, <laughs> right. you could clearly see he's lit from above. You know, he doesn't have like right. that little chin thing
0: it on. It is filters, I'm sure. Anyway, he's got all the good filters on.
1: So that's Ed Burns. So apparently Elizabeth and this man had rendezvoused twice in Hollywood in November of 1946. Both times, the two spent the night together in a hotel downtown in Los Angeles, believed to be the Cecil Hotel. Morning Ooh. afters, he would give, <laughs> Both morning afters, he would give Elizabeth food and rent money before driving her back to Hollywood. So apparently this guy was Elizabeth's best listener and always feigning his interest in Elizabeth's obsession for the Suzanne Degnan murder. However, perhaps Elizabeth began to drive him crazy with it. The author suggests of this black Dahlia solution suggests that Elizabeth might've coaxed him to drive her out to Lymart park, her lover's lane before commenting on the irony of Degnan Boulevard going right by it. So, In weird coincidence, which I'm not entirely sure I believe in, but it definitely is some weird situation here. Suzanne Degnan, little girl murdered in Chicago. Lymert Park was where Elizabeth Short's body was found. Degnan Boulevard was in Lymert Park. So there's that.
0: That's fun.
1: Yeah. So the author of this Black Dahlia solution suggests that Ed Burns could have become enraged with Elizabeth, feeling as if she loved and idolized William Hirons more more than she loved him. Now, William Hirons is the guy that actually murdered the little girl and was serving time for it, along with two other murders. So the author suggests that he could have tied up Elizabeth, killed her, and mutilated her body in the same fashion as Suzanne Degnan to allow them to live out his twisted interpretation of her fantasy. He also believes that Ed Burns committed suicide in March 15, 1947, exactly two months after Elizabeth's murder. He may have killed himself in order to join Elizabeth in death. His suicide note reads as follows. And I'm actually going to send you guys... A copy of his suicide note and we will put it on the patreon for the Patreons to see it because it's weird not so much what he says but uh, let me let me the, the not get ahead right? of yeah let me not get ahead of myself so the, the note reads as follows quote to whom it may concern i have waited for the police to capture me for the black dahlia killing but have not i am too much of a coward to turn myself in So this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. So the author believes that this note, along with the other letters received in the Black Dahlia case, had all had hidden messages that needed to be deciphered. Okay. Um, While this note was not signed, deciphering the letter does show the name Ed Burns. So I'm sending it to you now. And you can see exactly how they saw it.
0: Oh, geez.
1: And it is weird, like, the way he wrote it. Like, no, I mean, like, he kind of centered all the sentences. And, I mean, it does spell out Ed Burns, like, straight down. And who writes like that? It's almost like he centered it all. It's really freaking weird. Also, we... Yeah, also we don't ever find out who Mary is.
0: Yeah, that's weird. All of it's weird.
1: Mm -hmm. So, when the LAPD discovered the body of Ed Burns after his suicide, they were likely able to identify his body. If the police had followed the message of the note, according to the author of this site and this book, their next step should have been to revisit the evidence in the Black Dahlia case. Obviously, the note says in it, (laughs) <laughs> I've been waiting for the police to capture me for this killing. So you would think they would have seized on that. But um, if they had looked back at the photographs of Elizabeth, her friends and lovers from the trunk retrieve from the Greyhound Express station, they would have been able to connect the dead man to the unidentified man in the photograph with Elizabeth, which was the one I sent you before this, the one of the good looking guy. Mm-hmm was not the Easter Bunny. <laughs> God. So, however, the LAPD, again, according to the author, the author of this book and site, the LAPD would not be able to come out to the public and say that a dead man was the Black Dahlia's killer. The case was too convoluted and infamous for such an answer, and it would give the police department a reputation for bad policing. The author proposes that instead... The LAPD decided to keep the truth about the murder hidden, and the LAPD might have come forward to say that the Black Dahlia case is unsolved when only a few members of the department really knew the harsh reality. So that's prime suspect number two. I don't love that one. (laughs) I think that one is probably the most ludicrous one I came across, because I did read about all of, like, there were 10 of them, and I read all of them, and I picked out the three that I thought were, like, the most likely, but that guy was the most likely, but also of the three the least, in my opinion. But the last one is George Hodel. So Dr. George Hodel first came under police scrutiny in October 1949 when he was accused of molesting his 14-year-old daughter, Tamar Hodel three witnesses testified, yeah, it's doesn't it's not a great story all around, arch. <laughs> so three witnesses testified at trial that they had seen Hodell having sex with his daughter. Hodell was later acquitted of the sexual assault charges in December 1949. The molestation case, however, led the LAPD to to include Hodell in the suspect list for the Black Dahlia case. So They put him under surveillance from February 18th, 1950 to March 27th, 1950. And when they did, they installed two microphones in his home, um, which were monitored by 18 detectives. I feel like that's the most boring job ever. Listen to this guy. All of you. Just listen to (laughs) what happens. Write down what you find. So um, they installed the two microphones in his home. They were monitored by 18 detectives. The police wanted to see if Hodel would make any comments to insinuate that he was involved in Elizabeth Short's murder. Most of the transcript, like the first day, is really dull and boring. Uh, Hodel had sex, he berated his secretary, and he talked about money problems. Um, Amy, who's not doing that in this day and age?
0: <laughs> That's my every day. <laughs>
1: So, however, on February 19th, 1950, there's something horrific in the recording. And it, I'm going to read it exactly as they had written it. 8.25 p.m., woman screamed, woman screamed again. It should be noted the woman not heard before scream. So then later the same day, Hodel was recorded talking to his confidant. It doesn't say who the confidant is. Quote, realize there was nothing i could do put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket get a taxi expired at 12:59 they thought there was something fishy anyway now they may have figured it out i killed her oh the surveillance routinely continued catching a highly incriminating statement quote Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. So, the secretary referred to in the transcript was Ruth Spaulding, who died from a drug overdose. Due to Hodel's comments in the recordings, he was investigated for her murder. He had been present when the secretary died and had burnt some of her belongings before the police were called, causing the Spaulding case to be dropped due to lack of evidence. However, documents were later found that indicated Spaulding, the secretary, had been planning to blackmail him. She was potentially about to come forward about Hodel intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for lab tests, medical treatments, and unnecessary prescriptions. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So... Hodel's son, former LAPD homicide detective Steve Hodel, believes Elizabeth Short may have been one of these victimized patients. Now, there's a Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. Um, he wrote the report to the grand jury that was dated February 20th, 1951. In the report, he noted that Lillian denorac. Who had lived with George Hodell, identified Elizabeth Short as one of his girlfriends. She also said that Hodell had spent some time around the Billmore Hotel, where Elizabeth had been dropped off at meeting her sister before she had gone missing. Now, Tamar Hodell, the girl that he was the daughter he was accused of having sex with, she stated that her mother Dorothy told her that her father had been out partying on the night of the murder and stated that they'll never be able to prove I did that murder, referring to Elizabeth Short. Huh. Okay. So, the LAPD retrieved a photograph of a nude Elizabeth and a nude model from Hodel's personal effects. The model was identified as Maddie Comfort, who said she didn't know anything about Hodel being associated with Elizabeth Short. However, Rudolph Walthers, who had been acquainted with both Elizabeth and Hodel, stated that he had never seen the two of them together. So you've got, you know, why does he have a nude picture of her? But then everybody's like, I don't know. I've never seen them together before. After reviewing the information in the Black Dahlia Avenger, which was Stephen Hodel's website or book, or I think it was the book, head deputy DA Stephen Kaye, who assisted Vincent Bugliosi in prosecuting the Manson murders, proclaimed that the Black Dahlia case had been finally solved. However, others noted that Kay formed his conclusion by believing all of Steve Hodel's statements as established facts instead of treating them as hunches. So Stephen Kay, on November 6, 2006, he was in a documentary called The Truth About the Black Dahlia. And at the time, again, he was L.A. County Head Deputy District Attorney. He said, quote, Steve Hodel has taken this way beyond pictures. It no longer depends on the pictures. I have no doubt in my mind that George Hodel murdered Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, and Jean French, a.k.a. the Red Lipstick Murder, which occurred three weeks after the Dahlia murder. Her body posed in L.A. on a vacant lot five miles west of Dahlia location, which I didn't know about that. And... Were he alive today, and were the witnesses alive, I would have no problem in filing two counts of murder against Dr. George Hodel, and I believe that if I took that case in front of a jury, that I would convict him. So this wasn't just some, like, you know, up-and-coming attorney in the DA's office. This was Stephen Kay, who prosecuted the Manson murders. Right. This was a very established individual. So, Detective Brian Carr was the LAPD officer in charge of the Black Dahlia case during the time of Steve Hodel's brief being in 2006. Carr could not believe Kay's response and stated that if he ever took a case as weak as Steve Hodel's to a prosecutor, he would be laughed out of the office. Despite mixed opinions on his theory, Steve Hodel maintains a website where he continues to update information on the Black Dahlia case and still insists his father was the killer. So, There are other theories. The other theories are that a serial killer got her. Now remember I told you guys about six-year-old Suzanne Degnan was kidnapped from her home in Chicago um, based on anonymous tips. A few days later, they found her body. Um, William Hirons was arrested in the summer of 1946 for committing a burglary in the Degnan's Chicago neighborhood. Hirons was interrogated for Degnan's murder before eventually confessing to killing her. He was linked to two additional murders from 1945 during trial and was convicted and sentenced to those three consecutive life terms I mentioned in the Illinois penitentiary. It's theorized that Elizabeth Short's murder could have, have, could have ties to this 1946 murder and dissection of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan. LAPD Captain Donahoe openly expressed that he believed the two murders could have been connected. Elizabeth Short's body was found on Norton Avenue, three squares West of Degnan Boulevard. Degnan was the last name of the young girl, Suzanne. There also seemed to be similarities between the written work for the Degnan payoff note and the letters received in the black Dahlia case. Both of these works used a mix of uppercase and lowercase letters. Um, they also contained a comparative deformed letter P and had a worm f- word formed from magazine clippings in the exact same way. Both Suzanne Degnan and Elizabeth Short had been dismembered and drained of blood. So while William Hirons served life in jail for Degnan's murder, some suspect that he could have also killed Elizabeth Short. However, this is actually impossible as Hirons was serving jail time when was serving already in jail when January 15th, 1947, rolled around the day she was discovered, Elizabeth Shore was discovered in that fiat in that vacant lot. Others theorized that Hirons was actually innocent in both murders, and that the true serial killer was never convicted. The other thing is that, and this is the last theory, there was a possible police cover-up. So Agnes Underwood was a reporter and an editor with the Herald Express for 12 years when the Black Dahlia case struck. And she was this badass woman back in the 40s that was this real no-nonsense investigative reporter, which was really rare for that time. So she was really making a name for herself. Now, Ray Geese was an LAPD homicide detective lieutenant he prodded Agnes in the direction of Elizabeth Short's case while the LAP, LAPD continued to search down leads. Agnes covered the interview for the first suspect arrested in Elizabeth Short's murder, that Robert Red Manley guy. Mm-hmm. The story Red Tell's own story of romance with Dahlia ran in the Herald Express, and Agnes got the byline for that. So the following morning, the inter- after the interview with Manley, she was suddenly taken off the case, and it would take two days before she got reassigned back to it. However, she was almost immediately pulled off the case again, and this time it was permanent. So Agnes apparently was shocked as she was assigned to work at a city desk instead. At the time, she had been one of the first women to hold a city editorship on a major metropolitan daily in the United States. So it was a severe demotion she got.
0: Ouch. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One theory behind why Agnes had been removed from the Black Dahlia case is that she was getting too close to finding out the truth behind Elizabeth Schwartz's murder. If the LAPD had been trying to protect the killer, they could have promoted her to keep her away from closing the case. But the theory of a police cover-up was also addressed, like I mentioned earlier, in 1949 when the Black Dahlia case was still open. The grand jury was convened in early 1949 to both investigate Elizabeth Short's murder and evaluate the possibility of police corruption or cover-up. The 21 jurors did not have a suspect to indict for Elizabeth Short's murder. With the evidence presented, they named Leslie Dillon as the prime suspect. However, Dillon was never indicted. And while there was plenty of circumstantial evidence to deem him as her murderer, there were two reasons he was not brought to trial. The first reason was like I had mentioned, he had been illegally detained. And the second reason was that there had been a lack of concrete evidence. In the event of a trial actually occurring, a few witnesses were willing to come forward and say that Dylan was actually in San Francisco during the time of the murder. The LAPD believed these witnesses lacked credibility and did not want them to convince the jury that Dylan was innocent. In 1949, that was pretty much it for the Elizabeth Short case. They were like, "Eh, well, he's all we got, so... That's that on that.
0: Yeah, pretty much. So in
1: 1949, the grand jury did find the following concerning police corruption. Quote, deplorable conditions indicating corrupt practices and misconduct by some members of the law enforcement agencies in the county. Alarming increase in the number of unsolved murders, jurisdictional disputes and jealousies among law enforcement agencies. To this day, the grand jury has never indicted a suspect for the murder of Elizabeth Short. However, the grand jury findings did bring to light an avalanche of police corruption at the highest ranks. Jealousy and secrecy were among com- were common among members of the LAPD, causing case information often not to be passed on properly. The LAPD received a shakeup throughout the entire system, including the dismissal of Police Chief Clements Horrell from the LAPD. Elizabeth Short's ghost is known to haunt the Hotel Cecil's Bar and that of the Biltmore Hotel where she was last seen. Ghost Adventures did do an episode where they investigated George Hodel's former home, Soden House. I haven't actually seen it, but you can find it on Discovery Plus because all of their episodes are on there. Um, so that's how she kind of ties into why I chose this story, because we covered the Hotel Cecil. She was mm-hmm. she was a claim that, had, you know, her spirit had been seen at the Hotel Cecil. Um, right. Plus, it's always just a really fascinating. It's just a really fascinating story. So that, it's guys. Yeah, that is the story of the Black Dahlia. Uh, so which theory or suspect do you guys have your
0: money on? I say George Hodel. Oh, mine's the Leslie guy. Leslie Dillon? Because also, you know, she hung out with that Haggerty guy. Mm -hmm. He worked for him. So they have, like, a connection through other things. And she was, like, relying on Haggerty for a lot of, uh, like, room and board and stuff like that. And he was, like, she hung out with him, like, in a pseudo-girlfriend position. But he went through lots of girls like that. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, but that Leslie guy worked for Haggerty and it seems like that's how they knew each other. And it just seems really connected, you know, because I don't think it was just random. I agree. Like, I, I think is a strong suspect as well, but I feel like that guy just, he ticks all the boxes for me. Yeah. Like probably had some big crush on her and maybe she rejected him. and But he was like, that guy's kind of, Security kind of hung out with the you know rich guy, maybe got rid of her a little bit, yeah, she rejected him, and maybe he flipped, and he had all the politician right. experience and stuff, you know it just seems really fitting, like he was yeah. a young guy, you know yeah i <clears throat> was sure. I was gonna say red as the last person you saw, her, but Laura's got great points, so i'm gonna I'm gonna go with Laura, yeah. Last. Her yeah. doctor guy is not bad either. Like it's, mm-hmm. he's he's my other really strong. Who I think is probably also
1: and yeah, very, and very strong. He, he was also suspected in a number of other murders, including his secretary, including like a couple of other girls. And he this house is um this Soden house is was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son Lloyd Wright. So it's very it reminds me a lot of the Arizona Biltmore, Archie. Oh, because it's a lot of like Aztec kind of design and, you know, stuff right. like that. Um, but there, there was a, he's got a basement in it and it's just kind of creepy. I'm like, really? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so I think my money is on George Hodel, but yeah, guys, that's, that's the black Dahlia. I was, um, I was really excited to 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 do this one because it's, it's always been such a fascinating story. And like we were talking a little bit earlier we knew the gist, but we didn't know like the super details of it. Like I didn't, I had no idea. I knew she was a starlet. She'd come to Hollywood to try to make it. And, um, she was discovered in this horrible, horrible way. Um, I've seen her autopsy photos. Um, they are online. If you guys want to check them out, they're not great. Um, which, you know, (laughs) the way she died was not great. Um, so I've seen them and it's pretty awful. She is buried in Oakland, California. And her mother actually mo- relocated from Massachusetts to Oakland to be closer to her daughter's grave after she oh. yeah, after she died, yeah. Um so I thought that was I thought that was really touching and sweet, but I thought it was super fucked the way that reporter told her. That's awful. I yeah. think that was so fucked up. Yeah, that was that was probably the most fucked up thing I've learned about this whole story. Mm-hmm. The way, yeah, yeah, and that, that a reporter had to break it to her. What? What? That
0: yeah. it, it's messed up. I wasn't. You did surprised. a great job with the story, though. I have thank you. It was really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. I, somebody who knows, like I actually know quite a bit about it, so it was really. you did a really great job. Yeah.
1: Okay. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, that is April's Conspiracy Theory, guys. And we will be back next month with Archie's, who you've already got yours written?
0: Yep, already done.
1: Woo-woo. Nobody likes a one-upper. I literally just finished mine today. <laughs> um <laughs> Anyway, we hope you enjoy it and we will release Archie's. Uh, I think it's, we usually release them. Okay. We're supposed to release them on the 15th of the month. (laughs) We've been behind. So the Patreons have been inundated with a lot of content we were behind on. Um, Yes. So uh, mine will come out on April 15th, but I think we might wait a little bit to release Archie's because Archie's birthday is May 21st. So I think we will release this on Archie's birthday oh so nice um so uh yeah you'll be the star of the show and the bell of the birthday ball archie so oh boy you love all the double spotlights yes for sure anyway guys thank you so much this is uh it for me do you guys have anything you want to say i'll let you guys close it out since i've been talking for about two
0: hours <laughs> and good job on it mm-hmm. yeah that was good <laughs> I I'd, uh, I'd heard about it, but I never knew any details. So I agree with Laura. This was a very good telling. It was really
1: Thank good. you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Why don't you guys uh, tell the folks
0: good night? Uh, I'll say good night right now. So good night, guys. Close it out. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Carrie talk for that long. It was a real trial for all of us. Um, no she did a really great job really I just sure.
1: love to hear the sound of my own
0: voice <laughs> no, I was going to say it
1: wasn't a trial for Carrie she loved it <laughs> yeah.
0: so till next time uh, what are we supposed to say oh, I always say the end I never know <laughs> stay safe out there because you never know who or what is
1: listening <laughs>
0: there it
1: is. it's okay we'll browbeat her until she gets it <laughs> Bye guys. A, I just love know my part. <laughs> we love you guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.